Hi guys, uh, Pastor Greg Corcoran here from Battlefield Baptist Church. Uh, pray that this sermon is a blessing, an encouragement, and a challenge to you in your walk with the Lord. Additionally, I just wanted to say that if we here at Battlefield can ever be a blessing to you, please don't hesitate to contact us. And the best way to do that is through our website at battlefieldbaptist.org. Again, I pray this sermon blesses you, encourages you, and uh, that you'll fall more in love with God, more in love with his word, and more in love with people. Pastor Greg sent me a message, asked me to thank you guys on his behalf. I know he appreciates your prayers, and I know he would appreciate your continued prayers for his healing. I know that he desires 100% healing. Um, I know that he desires to feel well. Maybe, unfortunately, I know he desires to get back on the tennis court. And so hopefully this surgery would allow him just to, to do all those things, but hopefully to, um, to just be able to walk around pain-free. So I know he'd continue, he'd, he would appreciate your continued prayers. And so a thousand thank yous from Pastor Greg. Would you do me a, a favor and just pray with me real quick before we dive into the word? Father, again, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to come and to sing praises to you, God, this opportunity that we have to, to meet in your house together as a family of believers. God, I pray that, that you would use this, this just brief moment where we're coming to you in gratitude just to cultivate our hearts, God, that we might be able to receive your word this morning, that the seed of it would fall upon good soil, God that it might take root and grow in our hearts and that we may be able to adjust our lives accordingly. And not try to adjust your word according to our life. Father, use me now in these next few moments. Father, you increase and I must decrease. And I pray this in your name. Amen. The world hated Jesus. And that's, that's not like speculation. That's not something we just infer from, from the word of God. Uh, obviously, the crucifixion tells us, lets us know. We can be confident they hated Jesus. But Jesus wasn't blind to this fact. In, in fact, he told his disciples you can read it all, all through the book of John, but he said in, in John 15 to 18, he said, um, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Right? The world hated Jesus. But why? Right? Like, why? I mean, how could you hate somebody who's so, so kind, so, so compassionate, so, so gracious, so generous, so selfless? Well, he says in John 7, in fact, the world hates me because I testify of it that the works of it are evil. Right? The world hated Jesus because he testified to them that their works were not good. They were, in fact, um, evil. But who was it who actually really hated Jesus? 
I mean, it seems like the easy lob would just be to say, well, it's the pagan world that hated Jesus. But if you're familiar with Scripture at all, at all, I mean, if you've even glanced through the New Testament, listen, I'd submit to you that the outsiders, the pagans, were the only ones who even came close to getting it right. It was the Jewish religious world that hated Jesus. Right? And listen, it wasn't that they just grew to hate him over time. I mean, they seemingly hated him from the very beginning. That's, that's why we read all the way back in John 5. He heals the guy, the, the lame man at the, the pool of Bethesda. And, and, and it says in John 5, 16, Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus, and they sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So, so why did the religious world hate Jesus? Because he, he messed with their religion. Right? They, they loved following their religion. They, they, they loved following the rules of their religion. Listen, so much so that they made extra rules that God didn't even put on them. And they, they followed those rules as well. They loved the, the acts of following God, yet they didn't love or even know God. And that's why Jesus said in John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, if, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and I came from God. Neither came I myself, but, but listen, he sent me. He goes on to say in verse 47, He that's of God hears his words, and, and, and ye hear their, therefore them not, because you're not of God. Hey man, they, they hated Jesus because he messed with their religion. Which they so loved, they, they loved their religion. It made them righteous on the outside. But they refused to acknowledge their own sin on the inside. And thus, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Listen, they loved their rightness so much that they missed the one who could actually make them righteous. Until the reality of your own sin upsets you more than a Bud Light commercial. Hey, man, I, I don't know if you've experienced the righteousness of my God. Blatant, outright, in your face, bold-faced Sin should infuriate you. It, it should make you mad. And listen, at all costs, by, by any means, you should flee from and, and refuse to tolerate evil. And if it's, if it's within your means, you should even combat evil. Right? The prophet Isaiah warned in, in Isaiah 5.20, Woe unto them that call evil good and, and good evil, and they put darkness for light and light for darkness. And they that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But you know what set Isaiah apart from the religious leaders? Just like one of the many things. It was chapter 6. Hey man, chapter 6, he has this, this personal eyewitness, firsthand experience with the holiness of God. And, and suddenly when he's, when he's face to face with God's holiness, the reality of his own sinfulness sets in. And, and his, listen, his woe unto them in chapter 5 quickly turns into, in chapter 6, woe unto me that I'm undone. Literally destruction upon me. And why? Because my own lips are unclean. 
And everybody that I'm around, that I dwell with, their lips are unclean. Listen, if it were not, but for the grace of God, we would all be men and women most miserable. Amen. Grace, grace is for the sinners. Turn with me to Luke 15. Very familiar passage of scripture. I've not even talked with Chad all week. So the fact that he would even mention this. I mean, God is so good. Luke 15, we're going to begin in verse 11. Very familiar passage. It's the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son or the parable of the good father. Luke 15, verse 11. Again, grace is... For the sinners, and he said, this being Jesus, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said unto his father, Father, give me a, a portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, he arose, uh, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to want. And he went and he joined himself with the citizen of that country. And, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. This would have been the lowest point possible for a Jewish man. And, and when he would have feigned and have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, no man gave unto him. And when he came unto himself, he said, Many of my hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and yet I, I perish with hunger. I'm, I will arise, and I will go to my father, and, and I'm going to say to them, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose, and he came unto his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and he had compassion, and he ran, and he fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I, I've sinned against heaven. And in thy sight, and I, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. But his father said unto the servants, bring forth the best robe and, and put it on him. And, and put a ring on his hand and, and shoes on his feet. And, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and, and be merry. For my son was dead and he's alive again. He was, he was lost and he is found. And they began to be merry. This, this is grace. And this is, this, is, this is grace on full display, right? Grace is, is love that seeks you out when, when you have nothing, nothing, nothing at all to give in return. Right? The cliche definition is, is, is um, unconditional love. And it's a, a true cliche. Right? Because it's a great description. Grace is love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved, but it has everything and only to do with the lover. Right? Grace, grace to us often seems irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights or, or, or measures. It has nothing to do with our inherent qualities or, or even so-called gifts. Grace reflects a decision on the part of the giver that it negates any qualifications that the receiver may personally hold. Of course, the, our parable, the, the, the parable, the, the father pictures to us this attitude of our heavenly father 
right, towards sinners who repent. He is rich in mercy and he is great in his grace towards them, right? And all of this is possible um, um, by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, on the cross. And, and no matter what some preachers or some song lyrics may tell you, right, we, we are not saved by God's love. Listen, God loves the whole world, yet the whole world is not saved. We are saved by grace. Grace is love that pays a price. Um, notice with me again in, in verse 20. And he arose and he he came into his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and he had compassion and he ran and and fell on his neck and kissed him. Um, This would have been strange. In the the east, old men don't run. And most of the time in the west, old men don't run. Right, but this, this would have been way, way beneath him. Yet here we see the father running. Why? I mean, one, one obvious reason is, is the love and, and his desire to, to show his son um, that love. But perhaps there's something um, even bigger at play. I, I don't know. Deuteronomy 21 verse 18. It, it says this. It says, if, if a man have a stubborn and a rebellious son. Listen, this should perk up the ears of the teenagers. Matter of fact, somebody go get my son out the nursery. He needs to hear this. If, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which, which will not obey the voice of his father or, or the voice of his mother, and, and that when they have chastened him, he will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold of him and bring him out unto the elders of the city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of the city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious and he will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard, and all the men of that city shall stone him with stones that he die. I don't think me and you would have made it. (laughs) So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear that the wayward prodigal son had brought disgrace upon his family and upon his village. And according to Deuteronomy 21, he he could have and perhaps even should have um, been stoned to death. Hey, Warren Wiersbe wrote in his commentary, if the neighbors had started stoning him, they would have hit the father who was embracing him. Hey, what, what what a picture of the cross. Right, the Father rescuing us, shielding us from deserved death and condemnation. God's grace shielding us from receiving what we really, truly deserve. Back at, at verse 17, and when he came unto himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, yet I perish with hunger. Listen, everything, everything that he hoped to find in his far country rebellion, clothes and jewelry, friends, love, celebration, assurance of a future, right? He discovers back at home, but only, only when he comes face to face with his own helplessness and his own inability, Right In the far country, he learned the meaning of misery, but back at home, he discovers the meaning of grace, the meaning of mercy. Had he been dealt with according to the law, there would have been a funeral, not a feast. Grace is this liberating contradiction between what we deserve and what we get. 
And what a beautiful picture of what David wrote in Psalm 103. In verse 10, he states, He's not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. For as far as from the east is to the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth him that fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're just dust. Jesus continues the story in our, in our passage, right? And at this point in the parable, we're introduced to a new character, right? And listen, while the younger wayward son, listen, it hits on me too. I'm 12 times felon. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture, I promise you. And, and while this is this, this amazing illustration of God's grace and mercy, the, the story is a response to the scribes and the Pharisees' disdain for Jesus' love for blatantly unrighteous sinners, right? That's why at the beginning of the chapter, it says this in Luke 15, 1. It says, then drew near to him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him and the Pharisees and the scribes murmur, saying, this man receives sinners? And he eats with them? And thus Jesus responded. He spoke this parable to them saying, right? And the first example he gives is the parable of the lost sheep. Right? The second parable he gives is the parable of the lost coin. And the third is our, our text, the, the parable of the lost son. So again, the story is this response to the scribes and the Pharisees' disdain for his, his love for blatant, outright, uh, unrighteous sinners. So to stop the story before we're introduced to the older brother would be to completely miss the point altogether, as some do. Verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came, he drew nigh in the house and he, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of his servants and he asked what, what these things meant. And he said to them, thy brother has come, and, and thy father hath killed a fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and he wouldn't go in. Therefore came his father out, and he entreated him. And answering, he said unto his father, Lo, these, these many years I do serve thee. Neither transgress I at, at any, any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as thy sons came which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him a fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And listen, this guy has some commendable virtues. Right? I mean, I relate with the younger brother. I am a younger brother. I'm a pro-annoyer. I relate to the younger brother. I also feel like, you know, I relate to him. He's got some commendable virtues. He's, he's a hard worker. He's, he's obeyed his father. He's loyal. He's, he's never disgraced his family or his village. Right? I mean, he seems like a good citizen. And certainly when you compare him to the younger brother, a, a model citizen. Right? Compared to the younger brother, he's practically a saint. Yet herein lies the problem. The law demands righteousness, which it is unable to produce. Who was the one outside the feast? Who's the one who wasn't inside enjoying all the riches of his father? The one who thought he had it all together. Romans 3.20. 
Paul says as in Romans 3, sorry, chapter, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. Not one. There's none that understand. There's, there's none that seek after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are, they are together, become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. And with their tongues, they've used deceit. And the poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Now we know that these things whatsoever um, the law saith, it saith unto them that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that the, all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore the deeds of the law, um, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul says, listen, there is no one righteous, no exceptions. There may be um, many that attempt to do right, but none are righteous. Because the law, is unable to produce righteousness. It is only capable of showing us how unrighteous and sinful we really are. That's why he carries on, verse 21. But, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. Unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, by the law of faith. The, the law demands perfection, which is an unobtainable standard. Self-righteousness lowers the standard, effectively making the glory of men the only obtainable glory. But grace annihilates the standards, and that ought to be a praise God. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You can't work for it or else it'd be a wage. You would have earned it. How miserable we would all be without his grace. The American theologian Reinhold Neinbauer, he referred to original sin as the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. And, and, and what he meant was simply that both um, global history and, and our personal experience um, bear out the Bible's claim that human nature is fatally compromised from birth. Hey man, I, I can't help it. I was, I was born this way. Me too, man. Me, me too. That's why Jesus said we must be born again. 
Listen, there's, there's only two kinds of people in this room today, really. There's sinners who are jacked up, and then there's sinners who think that they got it all together. Unfortunately, most of us have been in the church for a while. We, we tell them to fall into the think we have it all together category. There's no one in this room or any room that you're going to walk into today or any day who's justified before God and on their way to an eternity in heaven because anything that they have done or have not done, your education cannot make you righteous. Church attendance, as good as it is, does not make you righteous. Your sexual purity, while it is commendable, doesn't make you righteous. Your great marriages doesn't do it. Obedient children don't do it. Patriotism won't do it. Soberness can't do it. Your straightness can't make you righteous. There is nothing that we can achieve or avoid or nothing that we can luck into that even has the potential to justify us, to declare us right before a perfect and holy God. Nothing. It's only when we come face to face with the reality of our sinfulness, like the younger brother, and admit our inability to achieve righteousness, that we are ready to receive grace. I think that there's a lot of people, like the Pharisees, who are in love with the outward acts of being a Christian, rather than the one who makes them a Christian. Right, We love coming to church and going to church and serving at the church and being seen at the church. But not the one who died for the church. We are in love with his death on the cross and the resurrection, but, but we're afraid to relinquish control and to die for ourselves. Thus, we continue to do Christianity instead of actually being a Christian. We follow a pastor, yet we don't know Christ. Jesus said in Luke 18, and he spake this parable, unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And despised others. Two men went into the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a publican. And the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus himself God, I thank thee that I am not as the other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess and the publican standing afar off he would not even so much as to lift up his eyes unto heaven and he smote his breast saying God be merciful unto me a sinner Jesus said I, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone that exalteth himself is abased and he that humbles himself shall be exhausted Rebellion and conformity are often flip sides of the same coin. Right? Sin, sin takes all sorts of different forms. Some, some 
overt and some a little bit more covert, right? Some are more damaging than others, but none, none of them are benign. And listen, once we realize that that sin has more to do with what's on the inside of us than what we do on the outside, we begin to see our desperate need for grace and our, our woe unto them can begin to turn into a, a woe is me. First step towards healing the sickness of sin is admitting that we have a need and that we must do something about it. Right? You go to the doctor when you suspect that you're sick. Right? That's why Jesus answered. He said to them, they that, that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners into repentance. Listen, thanks, thanks be to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. If you were to acknowledge your sinfulness, to, to turn from it and place your, your faith in him as Lord and Savior of your life, the, the sins that you cannot forget, um, God will not remember. That is grace. And grace is for the sinners. The grace is for the saints. Right? No one in the Bible is more of a repeat failure than, than Simon Peter. Originally um, named Simon, he and his brothers were, were fishermen by trade, right? The Gospels um, seem to indicate that Jesus changed his name um, after an interaction that we find recorded in Matthew 16. We'll, we'll read it together. Matthew 16, beginning in verse um, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to him, but, but whom say ye? Right? Who, whom say ye that I am? And, and Simon Peter answered, and he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and he said to him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So after answering Jesus' famous, like, who do you say that I am question, he answers it correctly. Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, right? Meaning rock. This is, we've heard this probably a hundred times if you've been to church a hundred times. Um, he lived with Jesus for nearly three and a half years. He, he's witnessed many of his miracles. He's He's seen the things that he's done. He's, a, he's an inner part of Jesus' circle, right? That inner circle of three. He's clearly he's been captivated by the Lord and by his teachings, right? After all, it's, it's Peter who's asking Jesus to explain the parables, and he's the one who's asked for more clarification about forgiveness. And, and he had given up everything to follow after Jesus, right? He had presumably a successful fishing business, and, and yet he, he gave up everything to follow the Lord whom he deeply loved. He, yet his track record is abysmal, right? I mean, if you sit back and you piece it all together, like it's, it's, it's heinous. When, when, when Jesus told him to walk on, on water, he became afraid, he sank. It was Peter who tried to persuade Jesus that he, he wouldn't die. Thus, it, he received the following reply, get behind me, Satan, dagger, right? Thou, thou art an offense to me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those of, uh, of men, he fell asleep at Gethsemane three different times, not just once. He didn't just doze off one time, despite the explicit instructions from Jesus, right, to, to remain watchful. 
And, and thus, he was asked the question, you, you couldn't even watch for an hour? Right? You couldn't even wait for an hour? His track record's not good. When, when the guards came to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane, Peter, he withdrew his sword, and Jesus rebukes him for it. After he's arrested, he famously denies him three times after being told by Jesus that he was even going to do so. And then, when he and John get word that Jesus is risen from the dead, they race to the tomb, he loses the foot race. So not only does his track record stink, because he's slow. <laughs> this is apart from being the first to acknowledge that Jesus was Christ, the Son of God, almost everything that he did in the Gospels ended in correction, rebuke, or just plain failure. Listen, if I didn't know myself even just a little bit, it would be very, very hard to imagine someone being a worse disciple um, than Simon Peter. Right? I mean, sort of just walking away from the faith altogether. In fact, it seems that the only thing um, which he could be relied on was to fail at doing God's bidding, with really only one or two exceptions. And yet those few exceptions were enough for Jesus to proclaim that he was the rock. Why? I think it's no coincidence that Peter was both the weakest and the one who recognized who Jesus was. Right, he could recognize the Savior because he knew how much he needed one. Right, his faith is, is directly tied to his failure. And listen, it gets even better, right? Like after the resurrection, the disciples, they left Jerusalem. They went back to Galilee. They're there by the Sea of Tiberias, which, it, it, listen, if you do a little bit of uh, research, they're, they're right back in the same spot where Jesus found them, doing the exact same thing that they were before they met Jesus. I know that, that hits a little close to home for some of us. They went right back to doing what they were doing before they began to follow Jesus. They were fishing. Jesus appears once again to seven of his fearful um, disciples, including Peter. And, and we read this in John 21, verse 4. It says, um, but when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. And the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, children, have ye any meat? And they answered and said, no. Notice, notice how Jesus addresses them, right? His fearful, doubtful you left me in my time of need again, disciples. How does he address them? He says, children. And this is not a reference to their age or their immaturity. This is, this is a term of endearment, right, from whom somebody had a special relationship with. And listen, given their dreadful performance in Jerusalem, they would have had every reason to expect punishment. I know I certainly would have, but Jesus has other plans, right? If you're familiar with the story, you know that punishment is not on the breakfast menu that morning. He actually cooks for them. He prepares a meal and, and shares it with them. And then we read this in, in John 21, verse 15. So um, when they had dined... Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, you know that I love thee. And he said unto them, Feed my lambs. And he saith unto him again a second time, Simon, son of, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, you know that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my sheep. And he said unto him a third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him a third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. And Jesus said unto him, feed 
my sheep. Right? Like, consider the scene for a second, right? Like, just try to put yourself there. It's morning, maybe it's a little bit foggy, the fog's still like over the water. His belly's full. Right? He's had a good meal, good fish. But this, this awkwardness of Peter's failure still looms heavy in the air, right? Like it's the elephant in the room. It's got to be dead awkward. And I'm talking like, like you told your, your wife she's just like her mother before you went off to work and you haven't addressed it. Now you're sitting at dinner, elephant in the room, awkward. And listen, I don't know why that's an offense to so many people. When I say it, I mean the best. It's a compliment, dude. So I don't know what you guys are talking about, but I've heard that it is an offense. So, I mean, picture, picture that level of awkward, right? There, I mean, there's the elephant in the room. They've not dealt with it. They're probably eating silently, like looking at each other, just chewing weird, looking back and forth. And verse, verse 20 indicates that Jesus, he took him aside for this private stroll down the beach. And I, I'm not sure why, but I like to imagine it's because he didn't want to humiliate him in front of everybody else. And three times during their interaction, Jesus addresses Peter by his old name. I don't know if you caught it. Not once does he call him Peter. He says Simon. And, and it's in the context of Peter's proclamation of Christ's identity that Jesus gave him his new name. When Jesus calls him by his old name, it ought to serve as a reminder for us of our, out, our identity outside of Christ. Totally depraved. totally depraved. When Jesus was just another guy, Peter was Simon the poor, Simon the fisherman, Simon the loser, Simon the coward. But once he rightly proclaimed Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the very Son of God, right? once he knew him as Lord Jesus, the Christ, he becomes Peter. And thus, when he's not Lord to us, the Christ, we are totally depraved outside of Jesus Christ. Christ wasn't interested in those who could bring stuff, and stuff to the table. He was, he was interested in those who had nothing to bring to the table. Right? Not, not those who thought that they could handle this righteousness gig on their own. He knew that, that listen, only those who have nothing going for them at all were going to be able to accept this, this one-way transaction of grace. Grace is a liberating contradiction between what we deserve and what we get. Grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Grace it's for the sinner. And yeah, I mean, grace is for the saints. If you're here this morning, man, you've not been saved. Why? Why? What are you waiting for? You don't need anything. You can't earn it. The Bible says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. That is, in fact, what we've earned. It's in reference to an eternity in hell, separated from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
The Bible goes on to say in, in John 3, verse 16, Jesus said, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, me, he says, that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent his son not into the world to condemn the world, but through him that the world might be saved. God um, came in the form of his only son, Jesus. He lived a perfect and sinless life, making him the only worthy sacrifice for your sins. And he paid the price for our sins on the cross, making it possible for our sin debt to be imputed to his account. He became sin who knew no sin. Thus, it made it possible for his righteousness to be imputed to our account. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. Ephesians 2.8, one last time before we close. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Listen, you can't earn it. None of us deserve it. But the Bible says you, you need to accept it. Right? Romans says just call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. If you've never called upon him, man, I'm getting ready to pray in a second. We're just going to kind of like officially open for a time of invitation as we reflect upon his word for just a few minutes. If you've never called out upon God, listen, don't worry about the right words to say. The Bible teaches if you call upon him with a sincere and repentant heart, he is faithful and just to forgive. If you have trouble even knowing where to start, you say, Travis, I, I've never even prayed. Hey, man, if you're face to face with the reality of your own sinfulness and your inability to obtain any righteousness on your own, don't worry about anybody else. Burn the aisle up. Come down, meet me up front. Meet Pastor Larry up front. I don't, Gary, maybe Gary will come up front with his Bible. Herb, Herb can come. Anybody here, we would love to take the Bible and show you how you can know that you can know that you can have a home in heaven. Call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. Christian, have you been trying to work for it? You know, we are saved by grace, but I think a whole lot of us try to live it out by the law. And we begin to cheapen his grace. I invite you to just stand with me for a second as I pray and just kind of open up this time of invitation real quick as the music begins to play. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would use these next few moments, God, to just work in us. Help us to block out anything that might distract us from you. God, if there's one here that, that isn't saved, God, oh, I pray that you would work in their heart, that they may not be able to rest, God, that they might burn up the aisle to come and receive your righteousness. Father, use these next few moments as you see fit. And we pray this in Jesus' name.